Hi, you're listening to the Duty of Care podcast, a podcast produced by the Faculty of Architecture and the Built Environment of the Delft University of Technology. This podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values platform, the TU Delft platform discussing values for engineering and design. I'm Roberto Rocco, Associate Professor of Spatial Planning and Strategy at the Delft University of Technology. In 2019, the European Union launched its European Green Deal, aiming to make Europe carbon neutral by 2050. We all know the transition to a carbon neutral economy is urgent, but will it be fair? Past transitions have always produced winners and losers, with the losing groups often facing unemployment and poverty, with dire consequences for social cohesion and social justice. Think of the deindustrialization in the north of England in the 80s, for example, and the current deindustrialization of Appalachia in the United States, which, among many other factors, has fueled the rise of populism in that country, with dire consequences for the future of democracy. In the case of climate change and the urgent transition to sustainability, not having a transition will make us all losers. But this does not mean we should not try to avoid or minimize the negative impacts of the transition on vulnerable groups. It's all about the fair distribution of the benefits, but also the burdens of our human association. Therefore, an essential dimension of the European Green Deal is the concept of just transition, that is, a transition to a carbon-neutral economy that is fair and inclusive to all, leaving no one behind. Sustainable, fair and inclusive urbanization plays a key role in this endeavor. With those ideas in mind, we organized a series of online events and courses that address planning and designing cities and communities for the just transition. By bringing together expertise from spatial planning, urban sustainability and resilience, resilience engineering, ethics of resilience and multi-actor systems. We want to discuss the values in social technical transitions and urbanization, namely issues connected to distributive, procedural and restorative spatial justice, as well as citizen participation, democracy and sustainability, understood in its three essential dimensions, social, economic and environmental sustainability. In doing so, we wish to address the interactions between design and values with an emphasis on operationalizing spatial justice through inclusive vision-making and by using societal conflicts stemming from the transition as springboards to dialogue. So, we came up with the idea of this podcast. We wish to discuss and exchange ideas with academics, practitioners and students of the built environment to plan and design for the just transition with a robust understanding of the entanglement between spatial justice and sustainability. In the first episode, Professor Faranak Miraftab will talk about insurgent practices of hope and care for humane urbanism. She is Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, with a focus on community development for social justice and transnational planning. Her scholarship is situated at the intersection of sociology, geography, 
planning and feminist studies, using case studies and ethnographic methodologies. Her research concerns social and institutional aspects of urban development and planning that address basic human needs, including housing and urban infrastructure, and the services that support them. She is particularly interested in the global and local development processes and contingencies involved in the formation of the city and citizens' struggles for dignified livelihoods, namely how groups disadvantaged by class, gender, race, and ethnicity mobilize for resources such as shelter, basic infrastructure and services, and how institutional arrangements facilitate or frustrate provision and access to such vital urban resources. Professor Miraftab is the author of a number of seminal papers on insurgency, a concept that she explores in her lecture. With no further ado, let's listen to Professor Miraftab. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, um, I'm grateful to all the organizers of these, uh, the last year and this year's manifesto. And I want to particularly thank Roberto Rocco and Caroline Newton um, at TU Delft uh, Global Urban Lab for this important and imaginative initiative, as well as Caroline Loretta and Russell Smith. Thank you all. I want to also thank all the audience for, for tuning in from different parts of the world and special uh, thanks to, to friends from Iran, my home country, to friends from Champaign-Urbana, my current home, and from Kate, to those from Cape Town and Penn Tech in particular, which is uh, where my partner, uh, Kate Kensalo, has taught for years, and South Africa is my adopted home in some ways. Uh, hello, all, and thank you for being here. So uh, let me uh, share my screen and uh, take you, okay. Good, we can see it perfectly. Great, thank you. So I want to first start with just a roadmap of where I'm going to take you today in the next 30 minutes. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about hope and uh, radical hope or insurgent practices of hope, a little bit about care and radical care and what these two things mean for uh, constructing solidarities for a humane urbanism. And then I will briefly, you know, bring those into what has been conceptualized as insurgent planning practices. And then I hope I take the last five or 10 minutes to focus on importance of imagination for decolonizing future, which I see manifestos and the exercise that you all will be involved in in the next um, month or two as part of that, that exercise of imagining a different world and an alternative world as insurgent practices of hope and care for humane urbanism. So let me take you with me and see, I hope I can deliver on this promise. I would like to start with, uh, uh, to, uh, with uh, introducing um, Miriam Kaba. For those of you who don't know her, she is uh, an organizer, uh, abolitionist, educator, 
whose work has been to end violence and dismantle a prison industrial complex. Um, and her work with youth and youth leadership development is uh, for a transformative justice. I use the um, notion of hope that Miriam Kaba introduces and articulates as a philosophy of living. She talks about hope as being a discipline of feet, as achievement of a daily practice, daily um, discipline. Uh, she writes that and talks about it, that hope is a discipline that we have to practice in every single day. Because in the world we live today, there are so many horrible things happening, all the you know, things that I don't need to remind you of, the inequalities, the climate change, all of those things. It is easy to feel a sense of hopelessness, that everything is all bad all the time and there is nothing going to change ever that people are evil and bad at the bottom. She says she understands why people might feel hopelessness, but she chooses differently. She chooses to think and act in a different way. Believing that there is always a potential for transformation and for change. And that is in any direction, could be good or bad. But the fact that there is a possibility of change, there is a potential in change, is what helps her in organizing. Believing that um, there are more people, ultimately, there are more people who want justice, who um, and there are hope, those who are working, there are more people who want justice than those who are working against and that's what motivates her to every day make you know participate in practices, what uh, discipline, what she calls a discipline of hope, helping her to practice for organizing. So hope isn't for her an emotion. Hope is not optimism. Hope doesn't preclude feelings of sadness or frustration or anger or any of these other emotions that make total sense. But this framing and understanding of hope as discipline is radical in that it is commitment to everyday practices for transformative justice, is grounded in action, that people actually practice it all the time. It's, um, I want to share with you uh, some of the images from when I visited with the help of Professor Clarissa Freitas at Universidad um, Federal de Sierra in Fortaleza, a community of Bon Jardin that was fighting for recognition, uh, an informal settlement fighting for recognition. And I find inspiration in practices of grassroots and how they resonate with what Kaba calls hope as a discipline. Choosing to fight and choosing the potential of change every day, every single day, one day at a time, one door knocked at, at a time, one flyer uh, at a time posted and that cannot, they cannot basically afford to give up. And it's these daily practices that allows them ultimately, whether they get their recognition that they want or not, and also other livelihood, dignified livelihood projects. So these daily practices that uh, I see in radical um, and insurgency in it. 
there is um, radical, this radical interpretation of hope is a long view. Also, Kaaba writes, writes about it, that it is not a short term. You don't, basically, your time frame is not the timeline of, on which your movement occurs, but you are recognizing that you're part of a much longer trajectory. And um, uh, Dela Mosley and colleagues, they talk about radical hope, recognizing the orientation uh, to individual and collective. That is not a hope only for me and my as an individual, but hope for the collective. And it's a hope that is not only grounded or oriented towards future, but also is rooted in understanding of the past. So this orientation to individual and collective, as well as past and future, is something that I will come back to in insurgent practices of planning. But I think it's very important to, to emphasize here. So from here, I want to move on to the notion of care and hope in humane urbanism. Hope and care, both we know need to, need to be examined as community projects community projects of insurgency as insurgent practices to, toward human urbanism. We know too well that how both hope and care can be indeed intimately implicated in the project of oppression, right? Religion has done it, uh, many other forces that you, you know how hope and care could be used for oppression rather than liberation. So while we speak um, of, um, we spoke a little bit about hope as a project of transformation, I want to now switch and talk a little bit about care and care work as a project uh, that needs to be decoupled from capitalism and therefore um, what I call it radical care. Humane urbanism for me is, a, is an alternative future I envision. If what we are experiencing today is basically urbanism that is centered on profit making, right? Everything, the winner wins all and everything boils down to profit. What I envision as alternative future is humane urbanism where the center is life and life making, not profit making. Right. So we know that the at the center, I mean, the work of life making has been performed predominantly by women and communities of subordinate communities and the work of life making or what we can call it care work and feminist social uh, reproduction theorists refer to it as social reproduction work. It, I think that is a little bit of mouthful. So instead of social reproduction, I refer to it as care work. These are, there is a fierce struggle around it because the work of life making, as I said, performed by women and subordinate communities often, is there is a um, pressure, there is a systematic way in which patriarchal, racial, and capitalism tries to make it invisible and devalued taken for granted through ideologies of patriarchal ideologies of gender and gender roles, et cetera. So the, um, 
the, the fierce contestation between these war activities, the social reproduction work, the care work that makes life and is really this is the base of everything that happens around us. And the forces of capitalism, racism, sexism that tries to devalue it by naturalizing and making it invisible is what we need to pay attention to. And decoupling of care work from accumulationist desires of capitalism is what I call um, radical care. In this um, implication or making care work invisible, of course, spatial restructuring, temporal restructuring and manipulation are all involved as well as ideology, et cetera, that was mentioned. If there was interest, I could in expand on it on a piece that Fahd Hook and I um, have, have uh, developed calling urbanizing social reproduction and showing how urban is, how care work and social reproduction and its invisibility is intimately implicated in projects of urbanization in different ways. So when I talk about what we want is radical care, what we aspire to is radical care, is insurgent practices of care, is precisely how could we care work that is so important be performed as base of life and life making, but not be abused and used by capitalism, racism, and sexism. I find inspiration in practices, again, of another urban movement and insurgent grassroots uh, group called Housing Assembly in South Africa. It's a citywide um, grassroots movement um, based in different neighborhoods and different informal settlements and townships in, in Cape Town that I have been following for, for years and um, now. So in their work, I, I, their work, their practices inspires me in, in understanding of or in seeing radical care in the sense that they work for access to land, land and housing. They occupy land, they build homes. They do the work of a care work. They are at the center of feeding their families. Like we all saw during the pandemic, it was really soup kitchens and the work that these women in, in poor neighborhoods did and are doing that has been at the base of survival of many that again, pandemic made only visible, but they have always been ongoing. But they don't limit, they, their movement is not limited to so-called leaking the, the wounds that capitalism and exploitation leaves behind. They don't only take care for free and cheap and, um, you know, uh, uh, taking care of the poor people and letting a state off the hook or capitalism or you know off the hook. They also, along with providing care work, they take the state to task. They push the state for delivering its responsibilities towards the poor. They ask, they demand, make demands, and also they, they question and challenge the notion of private property. They set up barricades and resist evictions to, to challenge profit-making banks and those who are evicting people. Moreover, they, they, they don't limit themselves to one or another 
way of being heard. Their practices, as I have explained in insurgent planning practices, inspired by groups like housing assembly, they demand to be heard. And no matter how they do it in different ways, through invited spaces, using the courts and taking, you know, justice to court uh, rooms or through invented spaces taking their marches to the streets or even setting fire. In this case, in Silvertown struggle, they made fire and stayed up all night in front of the municipal um, city hall to make sure they get heard the next day and that they did actually get heard for bringing in electricity to their neighborhoods under pandemic, et cetera. So in that sense, what um, the, the, the inspiration I get from uh, practices of these grassroots groups is what has been the basis of what I have um, written about and conceptualized and theorized as insurgent practices of planning. I go over the three main ways in which I have conceptualized them. And we saw many, and I, I hope we saw this in practices of uh, community in Bon Jardin or housing assembly um, practices that they do not they they do not limit themselves to here and now they transgress in time basically they can they have a historical consciousness and also a vision for future and they do they they have a transnational uh, consciousness in establishing solidarities with other movements. There is a strong connection, for example, between South African Abashlali movement and MTSD movement in uh, Brazil, et cetera, et cetera. So that transgression is in time, place, and also forms of action. Like I showed in Housing Assembly, they don't limit themselves in legitimized or formal spaces of participation, but also participate, take part in and invent new spaces of action. They are counter-hegemonic. They do not, you know, uh, only help with uh, better functioning of capitalism by taking care of their communities and their families and their neighborhoods, but they challenge the taken for granted order of capitalism, racism, and sexism. But it's the last point that I want to emphasize here for the purposes of our exercise of manifesto writing. And that is the one I will take the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes uh, for. And that's imagination. The insurgent plant practices also, I see them the way I distinguish them from, for example, what happened in US January 6th or Tea Party or reactionary um, kind of movements that might be insurgent or innovative in their strategies, but they are not against hegemonic power of sexism, racism, or capitalism. The other dimension is that what I call insurgent practices for humane urbanism, they have uh, an imagination. They are imaginative and they want to recover idealism for a just society. It's very important in my view to, uh, to emphasize on this dimension because the struggle over imagination and decolonization of future, I argue, is key political terrain of a struggle. That is the last point that um, I hope I can explain now better. Um, uh, explain why it is the last, um, uh, I shouldn't say the last, but it's an important 
terrain for decolonization. The writings of African intellectuals, such as the liberation of, um, teach us that liberation of the colonies could happen only through what Fanon calls decolonizing the mind and liberating imagination. Liberation needs a new consciousness, one that is recovered from colonial moral injury, the profound alienation that believes development of the colony could only happen through by rejecting oneself, right? By capturing what we idealize, what we dream of, and what is our, in this case, you know, might be the ideal of beauty, etc. Right. So that is. Um, what the, the decolonization of mind basically reminds us that it is an important challenge, maybe is not how, uh, at this point is not military occupation, but is occupation of our imagination and ideas. The colonization of our mind is what uh, Fanon talked about. I assert the need for a new consciousness that liberates planning imagination. This requires decolonizing planning imagination by questioning its hegemonized assumptions, what is possible and what is not. The core struggle of this generation, I argue, and the core struggle that this generation faces is between expanding the realm of imagination and closing it down. What is possible, what we see as acceptable or not acceptable. Um, And perhaps I like this picture because she questions in a way, who can tell me who can wear or not wear a hat? Um, I I like that. But uh, let me explain a little bit what I mean by a decolonization of future and decolonization of imagine as I see it. Um, intimately related to our uh, manifesto writing. Future is inevitable. It is open, open, and it is plural. But future is also empty, meaning that what it constitutes depends on how it's imagined, susceptible to be reinvented and be opened by a horizon of possibilities. Because of its openness and its plurality, future is an object of intense dispute, Bonaventura de Santos argues in his writings about future as a site of a struggle. But the open-endedness, plurality, and unpredictability of future also makes it a political territory, a site of fierce contestation over the content it can take. If we do not dare to imagine the unimaginable, then if we don't dare to imagine the unimaginable, then the future is less open and more predetermined as persistence and perpetuation of the present. Hence, uh, colonization of future. I um, often share this example that in one of my classes to freshmen in college, um, this Students who had fresh come out of high school educated through U.S. high school education system, I gave them an exercise in groups of five uh, for 10 minutes to imagine what would a just city be like. And quickly, I I noticed that they were not doing the exercise. They were not talking with each other. They were not sketching, writing, nothing. And I asked them what's going on. And they were like, it's not 
possible, is not realistic, is not viable. It's not possible to have justice. We always have to have inequality. And that's precisely what I think this last few decades that, you know, Fukuyama called the end of history, basically the, the, the assumption that there is no alternative to capitalism has the danger of it, that it has taken away from this new generation the ability to even dare to imagine that an alternative could be possible. And that is perhaps this manifesto exercise is important to reclaim, at least to imagine it, and then being able to exercise that practice discipline of hope to practice every day to, the, uh, to, to work towards that, that um, ideal and not be, um, oftentimes, I, at least in the US, I see that it's kind of um, ridiculed. You are an idealist, talked about, referred to as something demeaning, right? So that is what we are trying to reclaim and believe in. We choose to be hopeful and radically hopeful, not naively hopeful, and uh, to care for our communities, for each other, and construct an alternative future that could be humane urbanism. In uh, the last, um, let me just make one more point before I close, and that's I see this as the last terrain of colonization, the future, the imagination of alternative future. The first round or realm of colonization was grabbing land, grabbing resources that didn't belong to capital, uh, capitalists, grabbing human beings and enslaving them, right? Then Maria Miss and, and um, uh, her colleagues, feminist scholars, they wrote in 1980s about women as being the last colony, the title of their book. They talked about grabbing the cheap labor force of women newly at that point integrated into the labor force was how capitalism had discovered a new frontier of accumulation by bringing in all these women or feminizing the labor force and um, accumulating, making more profit. I want to argue here that the, 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 this new terrain of colonization, which is our imagination and future, is perhaps the last um, colony that how we should refer to it today. However, I argue that it is the future that must be invoked as the last colony, future as a political territory, a territory to be occupied to secure closure through totalitarian imaginations and through erasure of alternatives. The latest subject of colonial occupation or grabbing, then I argue, is the future and the struggle for its emancipation and decolonization is urgent. So, As opposed to Francis Fukuyama, who argued the end of history when the fall of um, Berlin Wall happened, um, because there is no, um, there is, it's the end of history because there is no other alternative. Our citizens' struggles um, is to overcome such closure and open up the terrain of imagination to conceive alternatives. The end of history as we know it can also be the beginning of history as we want it. 
For this, some people employ performative actions for their inform, for their um, insurgent practices. They perform, you know, I have been talked about it, written about it in a piece with the news eye on practices of performative practices of insurgency in Turkey, yes, the park struggles. And some turn into um, science fiction and or, or some turn into other um, innovative practices of insurgency. But here I, we are going to turn to uh, formulating uh, manifestos as uh, writing and formulating manifestos as ma means to decolonize the imagination, the hope for a just future, for a caring and a humane urbanism where life and not profit is at the center of plans and plan making. So to that uh, manifesto and to that um, way of uh, imagining a future and then dedicating disciplined, radical hope for grounded in practices is what we move. I want to also close by reminding that none of the manifestos were invention of sitting in offices and creating. They emerge out of political, you know, collective movements, right? From capital, a capitalist manifesto to feminist manifestos, they are all rooted in movements and their activities. So I, I stop here and I'm grateful for you all listening to me. Um, thank you so much. This lecture was originally recorded for the Manifesto for the Just City workshop, organized in partnership with several schools, the Institute of Housing and Urban Development Studies of the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina, and a number of universities who took up this exercise as a class exercise, notably Morgan University in Baltimore and the Cape Peninsula University in Cape Town, South Africa. This event was organized by me, Caroline Newton, also from TU Delft, Hugo Lopez, Professor Russell Smith from Winston-Salem University, Carolina Luneta from IHS in Rotterdam, and Professor Faranak Miraftab from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. This podcast is produced by Roberto Rocco and Hugo Lopez. Music by Hugo Lopez and Pablo Teixeira. Sound edition by Hugo Lopez. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for design for values research, education outreach, and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods, and best practices in the area of design for values. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for design for values research, education, outreach and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods and best practices in the area of design for values. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Music, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and if you want to learn more about spatial justice and our duty of care towards the planet and each other, don't forget to hit subscribe. See you next time!